the strange ways of God. The prophet Isaiah writes, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, speaking from the Lord, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord Almighty. Samson is a hothead. He lacks self-control. He lacks wisdom. He lacks valor. He lacks tact. He lacks experience. He lacks a close relationship to the living God. And he lacks resolve. Unless, unless the situation is one of personal gratification in which he has loads of resolve. These are not the qualities of a national leader that wise people would follow. Unless the people have grown so utterly complacent as to be willing to sacrifice their freedoms and their culture for the sake of not making waves with the powers that be. The powers that be in this particular epic that we've been reading about in the historical narrative in the book of Judges are the Philistines. And where Samson is a hothead ready to take up the sword or whatever article happens to be handy, the populace of God's people have grown so socially lethargic that they would rather get angry at one of their own, namely Samson for stirring up trouble with the very people who are the cause of their own social decline and bondage. So here is a timeless truth for life. When the eyes of a culture are cast on anything else but the Lord God Almighty, that culture is destined to self-destruct. Hmm. This is something even most Christians don't believe. In reality, in practice, my opinion. But isn't it grand that in a Christian nation such as ours, we need not concern ourselves with these things? (laughs) Truthfully, I am dumbstruck at the similarities to our current situation where our leaders, and I'm referring here to all sectors of leadership, meaning legislators, for sure, but also meaning judges and teachers and pastors and parents who take a godly stand against the wolves of our day and are then uniformly thrown to the wolves by the very ones who are supposed to be against the wolves with them. Such is the nature of complacency and its bedfellow convenience. It rots a person's resolve to work selflessly for a greater good, accepting the way of least resistance, adopting mere existence for the pretense of peace. For this reason, we are told in this book, first, of the lazy history of God's people during this day of the judges. Second, of their incremental acceptance of the rule by the anti-Yahwehists, to keep it in their culture. 
And third, of why Yahweh begins stirring in the heart of a hothead, since there's not even a warm head in the bunch of God's people. God knows what he's doing, whether we think so or not. By all appearances, Samson is not who you want leading your nation. For again, he is driven by personal ambition and rage and revenge. Did I say that God knows what he's doing? (laughs) The last we were with Samson, he had taken off for Ashkelon to take revenge on the Philistines, who had obtained the answer to his riddle by threatening Samson's bride-to-be. Instead of paying up for his gambling debt, out of his own funds, since he was swindled by the Philistines through using his bride-to-be, he goes to a city about 23 miles away. I believe I said 30 last week. My mistake. No one's salvation is going to uh, pen, you know, on that. But just to correct things. And he goes there and he kills 30 men of the Philistines, taking from them the price or the cost of the wager that he lost, three changes of clothes from each one. While he is gone, his bride-to-be is given away by the father of the bride to Samson's Philistine best man. We pick up in Judges chapter 15, verse 1. After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife with a young goat and said, I will go into my wife in her room. But her father did not let him enter. Note that Samson still considers her his wife, even though, as I said last week, they were not legally married. Remember that the marriage had not been consummated, and so the marriage never took place, culturally speaking. But the bride's father was also not exactly a completely upright individual, because Samson had already paid the bride price, as it's called, And the father hadn't offered any refund, nor was he intending to. Moral of that story is always buy the extended warranty when possible. (laughs) Now, for all of Samson's shortcomings, you can't say that he wasn't focused. Samson was back for one reason, according to this first verse. (laughs) Yep. He's back to claim his hottie and to have relations with her. And we're not talking about browsing through the bridal album. But the father says, Samson, walk with me. Verse 2, her father says to Samson, I really thought that you hated her intensely. So I gave her to your companion. Now, is not her younger sister? More beautiful than she? What a great father, huh? Please, let her be yours instead. Hey, why not sell out your kids when your skin's on the line? Now, the father was, in a way, trying to make good on the fact that Samson did pay for a bride. And so he's trying to do the right thing, sort of. From what we know, according to last week, about the bride-to-be from last week... Samson might have been wise to take the sister and to run. But this isn't about common sense 
This isn't a story about common decency or social justice or even rational decision-making. What is this about? Go back to chapter 13, the very last verse. This is the Lord stirring Samson up to bring about God's purposes on earth. Well, Samson is not happy about the father's counteroffer. And in verse 3, Samson says to him, or rather to them, to the population at large, this time I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Samson, it seems here, and I may be wrong, but it seems like he does have a conscience. He knows his little murderous tirade he's referring to last week, what we read about, and I just recapped, when he was in Ashkelon and went on his murderous tirade and killed 30 of the Philistines to get his gambling debt paid for. It seems that he knew that that was unjustified, but this time he says it's going to be justifiable. Verse 4, so Samson went and he caught 300 foxes and took torches and he turned the foxes tail to tail and put one torch in the middle between the two tails. When he had set fire to the torches, he released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines, thus burning up both the shocks and the standing grain along with the vineyards and the groves. You gotta understand, this was no small financial blow to the Philistines. So what do we have here? Contextualizing. This is called economic sanctions on your enemy, 1000 BC style. Verse 6. And the Philistines said, Who did this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines came up, and they burned her and her father with fire. (laughs) Nice guys. But now, wait a minute. Remember last week, didn't Samson's fiance sell him out to the Philistines by giving them the answer to the riddle for the very purpose of her saving her and her father's hide when they threatened to burn them back then. Another moral of life, cutting deals with unscrupulous people will rarely serve one well. We should be getting a sense of what life was like in this day and life amidst the Philistines and life amidst a time when every man did what was right in his own eyes, a theme that will be revisited as we get through the end of this book. Life in this day where personal vendettas and vengeance and indiscriminate retribution are the rule. Innocent bystanders are hurt, which only fuels more rage, which yields more bloodshed which yields more rage, which yields more bloodshed, and the cycle just continues. But the answer is not pacifism. Pacifism breeds the very complacency of a culture which empowered the Philistines in the first place. Remember, God's people haven't had an army for ages. 
Their complacency is what has landed them in the situation they are in. Well, pacifism has got the answer. And despite all of Samson's bad choices thus far, he might just hit on something in the next verse. Verse 7, Samson said to them, Since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you, but after that I will quit. Hmm. Now the word here refers for revenge refers to not this entirely personal, you know, make myself feel good, but does refer to, in fact, a lawful reprisal. And I believe possibly that what Samson, though it's just kind of buried there in the back of his mind, perhaps, came from Exodus chapter 21 when the law, when God gave what was called the lex talionis or the law of retribution in Exodus 21. The law of retribution is usually misunderstood today, seeing it as something of a day of brutality ruled by a God with indiscriminate wrath. But in reality, the lex talionis, the, the law of retribution, and I'm referring to the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was actually a merciful concession on the part of God in that it limited reprisals. So, for example, in light of man's sinfulness, two of God's people get in a scuffle, you know, they had a little too much new wine or what have you. One of them says something, the other one takes a shot and happens to catch him and knocks a tooth out. Well, the other one, you know, oh, that was my favorite front tooth, you know, one of three that I had left. How dare you? So, in a, in a, in a rage, okay, he goes after the guy and he takes out four of his teeth, breaks his jaw, breaks his arm, ruptures his spleen, and puts him in the proverbial hospital for a time. According to the law of retribution, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that was an unlawful and thereby prosecutable offense. So it wasn't just this, okay, well, the way things were back then is you do this to me, I'm going to do that to you. It was meant to limit, well, if you do this to me, I'm going to come back now fivefold, because that's the anger, the sinful heart of man. And God said, this is going to help limit that. It was actually an act of mercy. little side teaching this morning. Verse 8. Samson struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter, and he went down, and he lived in the cleft of the rock of Etam. All right, something is wrong here. And I, I, I wonder if you see it, but probably not. I mean, I didn't see this how many, many times reading through this book. Remember who Samson is. He is a volatile sometimes crazed with vengeance, loose cannon. We know that. But he's not just a volatile, sometimes crazed with vengeance, loose cannon. He is God's <laughs> specially selected volatile, sometimes crazed with vengeance, loose cannon. Remember, he is in fact a judge he is a deliverer. He is a small-s savior. 
raised up by God for the sake of liberating his people. So where is Samson's posse? The ones that he's supposed to be delivering. He doesn't have one. Instead, he's hiding away from even his own people. Why? Because his peeps want his head as badly as the Philistines do. And that's not a good recipe for national deliverance. God's ways are not our ways. Verse 9. The Philistines went up and they camped in Judah. And they spread out in Lehi. The men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? No, the men of Judah, not to get you confused, the men of Judah, okay, is Israel. They're God's people. They're Samson's people. The men of Judah said, why to the Philistines have you come up against us? And they said, we've come up to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. Samson, the deliverer, gets the enemy who has been oppressing God's people all these years, all riled up, and so they go to track him down at his home. But remember, when they come to Judah, when the Philistines come to Judah, God's people had no army, as I said. They had no trained warriors. And if you remember back several weeks ago, they had long ago succumbed, and this is not a contextualization to our culture, trying to make some kind of point. This is the historical reality. They had succumbed long ago to the confiscation of their weapons, the text tells us. So they're sitting ducks for the Philistines. And, of course, now it's all Samson's fault. Verse 11. And 3,000 men of Judah, remember again, these are Samson's peeps, They went down to the cleft of the rock of Atom, and they said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? (laughs) What then is this that you have done to us? Now, maybe you don't get the warped, perverse mindset that's going on here. And I am willing to bet that the majority of people who have read this over the ages sympathize with Judah right about now. Sure, their lives were rotten. Sure, they were in relative poverty, existing by the good graces of a brutal enemy who were their handlers. And now here comes that Samson upsetting their awesome lifestyle. Yeah. Again, a few weeks ago, though, remember the new normal? The new normal that they had come to accept and be uncomfortably comfortable with. Rest of part of verse 11, and he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. Again, another allusion to the eye for eye, tooth for tooth. This was a just retribution, but oh well. So Judah, who has no army because they haven't had any desire to even raise up an army for ages, suddenly gets 3,000 men, basically an army, to go get who? Samson, their deliverer. (laughs) 
the one who was going to set them free from their oppressors. No, they go to eliminate their deliverer who is making trouble with their oppressors instead of standing with him in their liberation. In fairness, okay, I was talking out of one side of my mouth there, but let's talk out of the other side of my mouth now. In fairness, Samson was in the battle for himself. That's been clear from the very beginning. He wasn't on some kind of an altruistic crusade because his nation was in decline. This was all about a woman. (laughs) At least that's what it appears to us. Because Samson knows what Samson wants. And Samson was all in this for himself. And yet, even though it's totally selfish... You have to give him credit for going for it with all he is. I mean, he put himself into it full bore. And what is he? He's a leader without a following. And that's not going to get anyone very far. He's a leader without a following. So had God failed in his estimation of Samson as a judge? Of course not. The narrative doesn't say that Samson would be the one to free the nation. It says he would get the ball rolling towards destroying the complacency of God's people and their cooperation with the wretched Philistines. Everything is going along according to plan. Not according to man's plans, but according to God's plan. Verse 12. They said to him, We have come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me. And so they said to him, No, but we will bind you fast and give you into their hands, yet surely we will not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes, and they brought him up from the rock. Now, again, this may escape you, but... Not everything with Samson is wrong about Samson. See, we should at least kind of raise an eyebrow here that the one who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has destroyed a lion with his bare hands, who went and took on 30 brutish guys and took care of all of them by himself, And so that he would be here basically pleading for his life from a people, remember, they're not trained fighters even, from a people that he could easily destroy if the power of God was on him. But that's not even where Samson's head has been at with any of this. This was all about him and his doing. So it does seem that he has maybe a little bit of a gut instinct about who he is and why God is working through him the way he is in spite of all his warts and pimples and clay feet. Verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him. 
And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds dropped from his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, so he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Why a fresh jawbone? Because a dry one is brittle. You start whacking people with that. And it's going to break. It's not going to serve you very well. Now, you might wonder how a jawbone from an animal still could kill a thousand men. And thanks to Don, thanks, oh yeah, I was in character. Thanks to Don Cole for the prop. He had this with him last week here. I don't know, what? He came up to me and handed it to me after the service. I'm like, what are you, a walking illustration? Guy's amazing. But you see, this is a prehistoric one of these. Ah, yeah. Yeah, see? Huh? All right. So that answers that question. Now, did you notice that Samson's destructive prowess is increasing as we march down the timeline with Samson? Remember, he started out with what? Just a lion, an animal. And then what? And 30 Philistines. And now what? A thousand. But as we come to verse 16, we're starting to see Samson, that he has a softer artistic side. See, first there was his little poem about the lion and the honey, and now a poem about his slaughter of the Philistines. It's a nice thing to write poetry about. But the poetic nature of Samson here is really, truly lost in translation. The translation reads, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. Now, what kind of poem is that? It sounds more like haiku or free verse than the rhyming and iambic pentameter, da, 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 with all the words rhyming in between her that we're used to. That's poetry, right? Well, you see, Hebrew poetry is quite a bit different than what we are used to. Rather than resorting to rhyming, Hebrew poetry is characterized by puns. Now, don't even think maybe in terms of how we understand a pun, but rather a, a pun in the Hebrew uh, literature and grammar is, is are two words that sound very similar but have radically different meanings. And so when you read the translation of it, it just you're like, huh, what? Sometimes it doesn't even make all that much sense, but it doesn't need to. It wasn't written for us. It was written for Jews who speak Hebrew. So in the Hebrew, I'm just going to give you a little, this is no extra charge for any of this, okay? This is called culture, right? So I'm going to read you just a, this poem, actually, okay, to see how, how, how elegant it flows in the original language. It says, Simson bilahi ha-chamor, chamor, chamoratam bilahi. Oh, doesn't that just slay you? Huh? My love? Bilahi chamor. Chamor. Chamoratam. Bilahi. See, she's swooning. 
Somebody want to take over for me? I'm going to, no. Verse 17. When he had finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand, and he named that place Ramat Lehi, which means basically the heap of the jawbone or jawbone hill. Then he became very thirsty, and he called to the Lord and said, You've given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Do you realize that this is the first time in this narrative that we have Samson even uttering anything to the Lord? Is this sarcasm? Or is this sincerity? I don't know for sure, but I lean strongly towards sarcasm. We've already seen the extent of his arrogance, the cluelessness of who he is as being a Nazir under vow of a Nazirite, one who is supposed to be devoted to God. And for all the hot spots that he's been and everything else, what we have here is the only time that he speaks to the Lord thus far for the first time. I lean heavily towards sarcasm. He hasn't had any need for God until now, as far as he is concerned. In the narrative, remember, we are the ones that are told that he did his mighty acts by the power of the Holy Spirit. As far as he knew, he was just a one bad dude. There's nothing we've seen or heard out of Samson that indicates he had any kind of a walk with the Lord. Nevertheless, God raised this man up for his purposes. And so there is no chance of this failing. Not lions, not Philistines, not even a lack of water. Wrongly demanded, if I'm right about my assessment. Verse 19, so God split the hollow place that is in Lehi so that the water came out of it. When he drank, his strength returned and revived. Therefore, he named it En-Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. And we come to verse 20, which to me is really weird. So he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. That should be the end of the story. All the other judges that we've read about, right, even when they had maybe one sentence only written about them or a couple of sentences or we get long stories, their life is recapped and wound up by, and this judge served the Lord or whatever was a judge in Israel for this many years. So it's like the story is ended, but the story's not ended. We know that. we got quite a bit of more historical narrative to go. Why is that? Why is that, I ask you? And do you know why I'm asking and being so dramatic? It's because I don't know yet. I don't. Um, not because I haven't researched it. I, I, I'm not sure. I have some ideas. Maybe by the time I get to the end of the book, I might know. But it's like Samson's public ministry, if you will, is like over. And now this is just kind of an addendum 
of course, which is by God's inspiration, which means it's important. Can an entire nation of millions of people grow so used to a diminished quality of life that even when someone tries to rescue them, they end up fighting against the good guys? That's a pointed question by the way. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 10? If somebody would, could inform uh, children's ministries that I'm winding down. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, brother will betray brother to death. And father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And, of course, what was Jesus speaking about? He was speaking about what we call the end times. When you've read that in the past, have you ever thought about the fact that wherever this country is going, whatever happens, when you start thinking about persecution and all, that it could even possibly be somebody the closest to you who becomes the one that turns you over to the bad guys. I don't know how else you interpret that. (laughs) Brother will betray brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. I hate to talk about gloom and doom so much. But most of the Old Testament is gloom and doom, always pointing to the hope and the only solution for that gloom and doom, to be sure. But two-thirds of the Bible is about the reality of gloom and doom in this world here and now, that this is not paradise, in case you needed to be informed about that. You know what, people who live in much more extreme situations, they don't have any trouble at all understanding that this isn't paradise. And I've often wondered, do people who live in a third world environment, and even in a particularly impressive third world environment, do they they think the same about life here and the possibility of death that we do? I I don't know, but I kind of doubt it. When the highlight of a good day for you is getting three meals of maybe beans and rice and some water that's murky, but at least it's supposed to be bacteria-free in theory. Do you think they cling to this earth the way that we blessed North Americans do? Maybe we should put blessed in quotes. Let us not lose sight of the fact that we are told we are the aliens. In First Peter or Second Peter, I can't keep those two straight to save me. 
I beseech you as aliens and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. We're supposed to be pilgrims who are just passing through, (laughs) not believers fearing death, fearing what the future holds, because my golf game might be infringed upon. That would be less than candid if I didn't tell you that my head goes there. (laughs) That's why I so appreciate the Lord's table. And the God of not just second chances, but of thousand chances over and over. Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, I think of the hymn, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Father, personally, I am thankful that we don't live in the Middle East. I'm thankful that we don't live in Central or South America or so many other parts of the world, but that we live in the United States. I wouldn't want to live in those other places, but, oh God, I do wonder how much the blessing has caused me to send my roots down so deep that I'm reluctant to embrace the reality of heaven in the ways that you would want us all to embrace it and to give ourselves to that endeavor and pursuit with all that we are. Lord, thank you for your mercy, for understanding who we are. And by your grace, help us to step up and truly be your body on earth. Thy kingdom come. In Jesus' name. Amen.